So how do you how do you pronounce your last name? Is Burnham? Burnham. Yeah. Burnham. Because it's <laughs> not how it's written. <laughs> no, no. I was just like, how do I say this? Burnham or Burnham? And do you want to be introduced as Allie or um, Alexandra? Yeah, uh, Allie is what my writing credits are under. So okay, so we're just going to keep it consistent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's always got to like that, you know, how you were originally credited and how people credit you now. Or yeah. you've got to change your name. No, I kind of missed my opportunity with my very first kind of uh, feature. I had a co-writing credit on it. Um, and then they just wrote Allie Burnham because that's just how they knew me. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even get the chance to think if I wanted that to be Alexandria or... And then so it was. It just had to stay as Ali. I, it's a good name. Because once it, I had the first credit, yeah. I've got to keep putting them under the same name. Otherwise, I, I think that's really true. Otherwise, I'd be starting from scratch every yeah, time. Yeah, every the, time. The just... CV wouldn't be building. <laughs> I'd just have 10 fresh CVs. Yeah. Yeah, every time. Just a different way of spelling your name. Yeah. That'd be, <laughs> I think that would be the most confusing career. Like, to someone to look back on and be like, who are you? Yeah, in saying that, though, the more research I'm doing into noveling is this idea they encourage pen names if you're switching genres. This is more for self-pubbing. Uh, but the idea is, say, if you want to ro- write a romance series and then you want to write a fantasy series, the actual industry talk is put one series under one pen name and the other under one pen name so you don't piss off your audience when they go to read your other stuff and they're like, this isn't the romance I wanted. Right, okay. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I'm hoping to put like my like my flagship novels if I ever get out there under my same screenwriting name, but if I ever do something wildly weird and experimental, maybe I'll go for a pen name. <laughs> oh, nice. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> just like really experimental. I'm just yeah. wondering what like what genre you would classify. Oh, it ex- <laughs> it's like it's, it's really experimental. Oh, well, because I'm pretty bland, experimental for me is just like, you know, cozy romance. But oh. you know, <laughs> some, something that's not the same brand as my, my high fantasy. Yeah, I was about to say, because you do mostly high fantasy. I was like, what's more experiment? Okay, co- cozy romance. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. That's completely like the opposite. Because <laughs> there's there's three levels of romance. So there's your cozy romance, there's your steamy romance, and then there's your erotica. <laughs> I feel like steamy and erotica are probably very close. Yeah. Oh no, there, there's a line. You can <laughs> you can still have steamy and then just straight up pornographic, and there there is a line to be drawn I was, between I, uh, the two. I think it was like when I was about eighteen. Yeah. You, you, at my. <laughs> At my birthday party, everyone bought me like an erotica book, and I was like, "I'm the last person who would read a erotica book." I'd be like, "No, give me a sci-fi or give me a high fantasy and stuff." And they were just like, "Here you go, an erotica." And I was like, "All right, this is going into the drawer of never touching. Like, no interest at all." Is, was it one of those choose your own adventure ones? No, I, no it was like one of the B grade shelf. It was oh, like okay. it was because it had that. What I love about when you go through novels in a bookshop is clearly the ones that have had like the ones they've stolen the cover off the internet. Yes. They've clearly yep. found it on the, the depth. The two Photoshop yeah. together, yes. So it's like in the depths of the um the internet. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be... I think I read a page and I was like, this is like just starting off straight into sex. Like it's not even... It's not See, even, that's level three. Uh, yes. yeah, yeah. It's not even skipping... Like it's skipping 10 beats and going straight into just like full-on sex scenes. I'm like, cool. Not my cup of tea. I had a similar gift from my group of high school friends, but it was a, a choose-your-own-adventure erotica novel. Oh, and the idea is when they bought it offline, they could choose to insert character names. <laughs> so they put my name in with a list of random 
yeah. bloke names in our school environment. And yes, and the, the adventure unfolds. And I'm like, great. Thank you for this beautiful birthday gift. I will probably never read it. <laughs> but I appreciate the idea. Uh, <laughs> the creative genius of it is the gift, not the actual reading. Oh, that is so true. That is so true. <laughs> This is the Things We Do podcast, a podcast about films, TV, culture, life, books, everything, basically mental health as well. Uh, this title will change every time I introduce what my topics are. Um, today, I've got my uh, special guest, Ali Burnham. Thank you for joining me. Um, Thank she you for is, having me. Um, a film writer and book writer and basically all big time aspiring writer, basically. <laughs> that, that's a good just, like introduction. Yeah, no, I write things. Or, <laughs> or, or at least I try. Yeah, no, I... Um, Attempting not to pigeonhole myself early in my career because I love experimenting with all mediums. Um, um, you, you can probably hear my dog in the background. Yeah, I do. Um, Ali's dog is just like chilling. What's your dog's name? Farah. Farah. Farah so, like Farah Fawcett. I love that. And she is just chilling in the corner. And so if you ever hear a dog noise, <laughs> it's her. Just, yeah. just having a whale of a time over there. Um, so we'll talk a bit about your background. What got mm -hmm. you... What started for you first in terms of like interest into, you know, the whole arts Anything industry? creative. Yeah, yeah, in terms of like the whole <laughs> arts industry, what got you into it? Yeah, I guess I was just creative very young. It started with music. Uh, by grade four, I was playing the saxophone in my local school band um, and was just interested in all the creative outlets at primary school that continued throughout high school where I focused heavily on drama and music and entertainment for my HSE subjects and I was always a high achiever in high school so I remember having this moment of well do I do the sensible thing and become like a doctor or a lawyer and you know make money and have the picket fence and a mortgage <laughs> uh, and I'm like oh I'm high achieving enough that do I you know, take the risk and chase the thing I actually want to do and actually want to love and do love. Um, so it was, it was a bit of a, yeah, screw it moment. Um, and for university, I applied for uh, my bachelor in film and screen media at Griffith Film School in Brisbane. Um, at this point, I, I really enjoyed writing. I had done writing um, in English Extension 2 and I wrote my drama IPs myself. So it was always just something I was encouraging myself to do even in all my drama projects. I don't think I ever really had a talent for acting, but like I enjoyed being on stage and being a part of that world um, in high school. So I, I did my film course with this idea being like, look, I want to try all facets of film and maybe I'll fall into whatever subject I'm most suited to. Because the film course was really good in that it was teaching cinematography. It was teaching sound, editing, directing. Like you, you were just going to get a, a full splattering of the whole course. Um, and I ended up falling into script supervising and ADing, like on, oh, wow. on, okay. on set ADing. And I did a lot of indie ADing while I was kind of my five years in Brisbane um, and where I made all my early film connections was through ADing. Uh, but at the end of my film course, I'm like, look, I've done all that and I still feel like I like writing the most. Like it yeah. was still, that's still where I, I found a passion for story. 
Um, so then I took a chance and applied for my NIDA, uh, the NIDA Masters course, Writing for Performance. So that's a year and a half course under Stephen Sewell down here in Sydney. Um, I had no intentions of moving to Sydney at the time. I just applied and I was like, I'll see what would happen. And they only take eight students a year, so I didn't think I would get in, um, but I did. So it was this overnight decision to pack up, leave Brisbane, come to Sydney because I've gotten into NIDA. Uh, and even at this point in my career, I still wasn't entirely certain how I would turn it into like a career, like something yeah. I would make money from. Like I'm, I'm still just in the middle of university mindset, having fun in the industry, uh, no real clear path forward, but what NIDA did and probably what was most valuable about NIDA is oh, they're really good at blowing smoke up the ass of everyone who goes there. <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful bubble of just telling everyone how amazingly special and talented they are. So you get a year of this patting on the head. <laughs> so you come out of NIDA being like, I'm the shit. <laughs> like, I, I'm amazing. I can do anything. Um, and then they chuck you out on your ass. And then you're, like, <laughs> and then you're in Sydney uh, and you're like, oh, okay. Now I need to turn all this self-esteem into, uh, into making money. <laughs> so so how, how do I do this? Um, and so, so I started freelancing, um, just putting mm. my hand up for any and everything. It started with script editing because I could be like, yeah, I've got a, a master's in writing, so I might potentially know what I'm doing. Um, and it, it snowboarded from there in terms of meeting producers, producers who were looking for writers, me being like, hey, I'm probably a better writer than I am an editor. And, yeah. um, and I've managed to do that for six years and slowly wheedle my way up. And no one's found out I'm a fraud yet, so it's going well. <laughs> this will be the podcast that reveals everything. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you say that as well about education and stuff. It's so true. Like when you, I, I remember going to TAFE and you know I did a film course, media and stuff, and they really do like they praise you on how good you know you are at yeah. everything. And then when you go into the real world, everyone just goes. Oh, you're as good as anyone else. Like, yeah. so it, there's a lot of like proving that you can do it. And I think it's very like um, uh, encouraging that, you know, like you started as a script editor mm. and, you know, did script continuity, like, yeah. um, which I think, uh, well, a script supervisor, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. So that, Conti, the, the, the Conti the, girl, the Conti, the same thing. Yeah. I think that, yeah, that title always makes me go, it's continuity. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just a fancy way of saying it. <laughs> But there is sort of, I think, with writing as well, it's it's such an art form. Mm. It's not, um, it's not just writing words. It's kind of crafting something, and also working as an a script editor. You're also working out what's bad. Yes. So a lot of it has to be like taking your ego away from writing. Oh yes. How how actually that's kind of like how do you sort of now that you're kind of like being paid to do writing now? Mm -hmm. How do you kind of strip away your ego when you get feedback that you're like ooh. <laughs> okay, that was like harsh or The trick is not to reply to the email for 2 days. <laughs> <laughs> Go away, simmer down and then come back once you're over it. Um 
No, look, honestly, it's two completely different brains. Um, and I didn't mean to throw NIDA under the rug. I loved my year at NIDA. Um, but they were heavily focused on the creative side of it. How do you write the world's best first draft? How do you yeah. mine yourself for the most creative, original, world-changing ideas? Um, and the stuff I had to learn after NIDA was the, okay, great, you've done that. Now, how do you turn this into a commercial product? How do you yeah. go away and do the hard work? How do you do the subsequent 29 other drafts on this feature script kind of thing? Yeah. Just, you know, all that stuff of, um, you know, crafting ideas. And I think this is the thing I say a lot of, a lot of people who go into education, what you'll discover is you know it's it's the industry is a hit and miss kind of thing and you got to create it for yourself mm. and i i say this about like um uh, you know the, the thing i do for photography most of my photography actually makes me no money in fact a lot of it makes me no money um and that's because i do it for me but i end up having to like pay for things and you know co- you know work out the cost of things so a lot of it is producing for myself mm-hmm. Uh, but then going, okay, well, one day this is going to pay off because you have to kind of like believe in yourself to keep doing and also challenge yourself. I think um, a lot of the opportunities have been given at the moment are through art friends who have just mm. gone, I want to work with you. One, because, you know, like you're fun to work with, but also two, you actually have skill. It's yeah. it's a very like different thing to working, playing with friends and then playing like with friends who have skills. Yes. No, uh, this is something I, another hard lesson was, I think this is all the way up to the very top of the industry is that people don't want to work with ideas. People want to work with people. Um, and at the end of the day, that's what this industry is, is if you are an interesting creative person, you're going to find your way onto interesting creative projects, um, rather than that raw door knocking, I've got an idea, um, and everyone, uh, shutting a door in your face. Um, but absolutely, uh, uh, coming back to what we were saying that the two sides of the coin are to survive, you've got to have this unbelievable sense of, I want to keep doing this. I believe in the idea. I believe in myself. I can do this. And then on the other hand, being like, the draft I just wrote is a piece of shit. How can I go through and tear it apart so it can be better? So it's equal parts simultaneously try to believe in yourself while tearing yourself apart so the work can keep getting better. Um, Advice I give to the people I'm editing for is... Try and always think of the project as separate to yourself. So it's like, I'm, I'm going to go in and talk about all the things that aren't working in this script. Um, but it's not reflecting on you because you're equally viewing this script as something separate and that needs yeah. to be fixed. And I believe in you as the writer to have the ability to come in and fix it. So let's let's judge this separate 3D object for all its flaws. Um, and then you can go in and fix them. And then I'd have to give myself that same advice later when someone tells me that one of my things aren't working and I'm like okay well thankfully so- I, wrote, I wrote something previously that worked I just have to trust the process that I can do it again and yeah keep I, going. It, the funny thing also with um, writing my own scripts and writing like and reviewing other people's scripts because I, I remember I had no interest in writing Mm. for a long time because <laughs> it was like writing was one of those things I was like I admire this and I love everyone's <laughs> stories but it's just something that I found so hard mm. because I grew up with like a learning disability so it was like that for me was like words were not my strong point it was yeah. like learning words was hard enough what, <laughs> let alone putting in doing something, something with, something with yeah. so now I started writing like um Doctor Who fan stuff yep. and 
also writing my own horrors and sci-fis. Nice. So, which I love. They're so good. But I think one of the things I learned very quickly was what didn't work. And and that is always the funniest thing is when you have a read-through mm. and you hear all the dialogue that you've written and everything's spoken aloud and you just go like this as the first read and you go, Oh god! And I'm uh, by the way to the audience. I'm putting my hand to my face. Because that was a face palm. It was a yeah. face palm. Good times. But it's so true because you sit and you go, oh. So, and then you have a hundred questions, and everyone's going, oh. So I didn't understand this character motivation, or I didn't understand oh, this, yes. and you just go, oh, I know everything, but I have not explained. But this. it's not on the it's page. It's not on the page. I'm currently in the middle of this problem with my novel. Yeah. Um. And and I'm even getting feed that people are like, I get the sense you know why the character got to A to B, but they're like, it's just not on the page for me. Yeah. Uh, especially since I'm making the transition from screenwriting to novel writing. Um. Obviously, interiority is not a tool I'm used to using because interiority doesn't go on to the screen page. There are no thoughts and feelings. Action. A character is purely action and reaction. Yeah. Um, so I, I approached plotting my novel the same way. But um, there seems there's an inherent promise in a novel that there needs to be a bit more thought uh, <laughs> tying everything together. So that that's what I'm learning. <laughs> I think like um, the the funny thing is I'm starting to write for radio now because, you know, during the pandemic, it was a lot easier to make radio than oh, it yes. is like <laughs> getting people next to each other to is, point a camera at yeah. is is so much harder. And the ten other crew members you need hidden <laughs> yeah, in the hidden same room. And everyone breathing the same air. It's great. Yeah. Um but I think one of the things about audio is it's actually very so it goes I think the transition from T V to audio is actually quite easy. Mm. You just gotta explain more in the dialogue what the room looks like. Yes. And then with a book, as you were saying. It is virtually like you need to explain how the bookcases look or how like the aesthetic of the room is or how like the light shines. It's just uh, yeah. everything is so, you know, every book I ever read, you like, I think Stephen King's actually probably <laughs> the person who I remember re- um, watching an interview uh, with Bill Hader. Um, and it was explaining his love for Stephen King, but how much you could read a Stephen King book mm. and be like, he could explain how to fry an egg in a page and a half. It wasn't just like three words of the, the kid fried an egg. It was, this is how it felt. This is what it looked like. That you know, It was always in depth. And yeah. that's why I like Stephen King's books are like so <laughs> thick because everything's really detailed. Oh, yes. And another habit of mine that I got called out for is, so at the start of a scene, I would describe what the character's wearing and I would go into the detail and make it sound pretty, um, but I'd only do it once because that's all you need to do in a screenplay is like <laughs> you tell the costume designer, this is what they look like. You move on with the rest of the scene. So I was kind of getting comments being like, oh, wait, who's wearing what? Uh, like people would just get confused about the visuals because I'd only set it up once and never touch it again because for my interior process is, well, it's not my job. It's the costume department. So then I'm like, oh, God, it's a book. <laughs> I, I need to keep reminding people what people are wearing and what they look like. And that was new <laughs> to me. Yeah, it's it's like you are every role in, yes. in a book. Yeah, um, You are the sound operator. You are the camera operator. Like I think also um, it, it makes it very... There's something about richness about books. It's very like because books were first. Mm. So we go back in like the wonderful world of history. Books were basically one of the early. Oh, the campfire story came yeah. first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Technically, everyone was sitting around with their s'mores, and, and then you know, someone like... decided to write it down yeah. once they had letters. Yeah. yeah once, they, once they could not just write in hieroglyphs, they started to like <laughs> physically write words. Um, but yeah, like the books came along, and then obviously films came along mm. later. But but radio and then film. 
Um, and, don't, and a shout out to the theatre in between. Yes. The theatre peeps. Yeah. Um, the theatre peeps. And also, but there were book tellings in like, yeah. you know, like novelists would go and tell their stories in theatres. Um, Charles Dickens was quite famous for doing that. He'd go and recite ha- half of his mm. novels. Um, and Shakespeare as well, like... The, the, the funny thing is, like, you know, Shakespeare, still people believe he, that was a pen name. I actually don't know because I kind of just, like, go, eh, if, if it was a figure, it was a figure. If it was a pen name. Yeah. <laughs> like, multiple I, writers. I, I haven't expended the energy on getting in on that debate. No, but there's, I mean, it's a massive debate. <laughs> Take but, or leave the word. Yeah, but I think in terms of writing now, you've got such a different platform. You've got mm. so many um, platforms. Is there really, like... It, is novel like do you want to eventually touch most platforms like or all the platforms in terms of writing or is it specifically just film and, and um so my, my my first love was film i just i love it as an art form and i do love the creative process that the screenplay is a blueprint i can hand off to other people and see what actors bring to the characters see what the director the dop bring to the story um i've never been too precious about uh, needing to guide every detail of the transliteration from screenplay to film uh, because I've always viewed it as a blueprint. If I wanted that kind of control, I would have become a director, but I've had very little interest in directing. I, I tried it once. It was fun, but I got it out of my system and I'm done. Happy to stick to writing. Um, but the reason I dove into novels for my for the books I want to write now is... I just kind of looked at the story as a whole and I'm like, there's no way this can exist as a screenplay. It's too big. It's too nonsense. It's home is as a book. So I better skill up and learn how to write a book if I ever want to tell this story. So it was was the medium in service of the story. And that's kind of how I want to approach all my ideas. Hopefully for the rest of my career is, okay, this is the idea. Now working out what is the best medium to service that idea. Yeah. I think that's a very like um I want to say very mature way of looking <laughs> at looking at storytelling as well because it's it's very like I w- I don't want to criticize a whole bunch of people out there <laughs> but it it is very true that a lot of a lot of writers try and stick to a medium mm. like they stick to this one thing and I think it's very unique when you kind of go okay now what suits the story yeah. what suits the medium of the story and how do I want to tell that um like, I probably haven't made the smartest career move in that I've just <laughs> tried, I've spent five years establishing myself as a screenwriter and then I've just sunk two years into writing a book, <laughs> which has, you know, not stalled. I'm still doing screen development, but I probably haven't hit it as hard as I could have been because my attention's been split. Um, and so I've had to do a lot of soul searching to be like, no, I feel justified in what I'm doing simply because it's what I want to do. And thankfully I have the freedom to explore both avenues rather than feeling pressured to just chase one yeah. career path. I th- I, well, you know, some people just chase the one and I think um, it gets very boring very mm. very quickly. Um, like, you know, I know so many people who wanted to be actors and then ended mm. up doing behind-the-scenes stuff way more. Like, I remember in drama school, I wanted to be an actor and then I got into film studies. I became, I became much more interested in editing. One thing I actually, like, I will say about editors is... Editors, like, film editors are, you know, writers are actual best friend. And they are the director's worst enemy. (laughs) um, Writers tend to love us Mm. because we, uh, you know, we're piecing together like this weird puzzle. Yes. That is the mindset of the writer. Um, And the directors tend to hate us because it's not entirely how they saw the vision. Yeah. 
And I remember every film I've edit- edited, I will look back in three years and go, oh, I actually really liked the way I've compiled mm. that and, you know, been good, given good feedback. But generally the director will never like the film until five years later. And they go, <laughs> oh, it's good. You know, like I actually, it's not as bad as I remember because they have all the hate <laughs> towards all the production woes. <laughs> so there's, there's always an unhappy story for someone, but in terms mm. of the writers and the post people, we kind of have the best time because we're not involved with the the fire that is production. Uh, yeah, no, as much as I loved being an AD on set and I love the community spirit of the set, which mm. is the same kind of kick you get out of theatre where it's like everyone comes together, it's go time, everyone's silently working, it's choreographed, everyone from the gaffer to the actors has their part to play during you know, between action and cut. And so so I love that energy so much. Um, but at the same time, I I don't know if I'm made of the right stuff to be able to do that for the rest of my life. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it ages you, <laughs> that. I think, yeah it, yeah, it definitely does. And I think that, you know, uh, operators who are camera operators or directors, people who want to be directors full time. Yes, yeah. Kudos to you. Yes. (laughs) You're a different beast. You're a different beast. And I adore you, but I just, like, I am fundamentally, like, at my heart, an editor. And it's because, for me, it's always because I know a rhythm, I know a beat. And generally, it's always about, you. when you read a scene, you know the pacing. Mm. Like, I love sitting in read-throughs and listening to a scene and listening to performances. And I think whenever I direct someone, this is like the little lesson I've said is I will try and give it as minimal direction unless something sounds flat. Yeah. And then yeah. I'll go, okay, try this as a direction. Mm-hmm. And then, but generally act, you employ actors to play around with the scene. Yes. And that has to come from an emotional beat within them as well. Like they bring Absolutely. themselves to it. So. Like, when you write a story, how's that, especially a screenplay, how do you go about, like, being satisfied with casting? Because I imagine you have a kind of very little say, but mm. or is it a big say? Um, again, I'm probably the odd one out because when I have producers come to me being like, can you just make a, a fantasy casting so we know how to start our casting process? I've, I've had that discussion a few times and I'm like... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Kit Harrington, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Look, Kit Harrington in anything. I, I, I don't even. I don't use images of real people when I'm writing, so that is a very bizarre process for me. Um, I'm I'm not picky about the casting at all. Uh, again, because I love the idea of the screenplay as the blueprint. Um, my favorite discussions with actors when they're reading my work. Uh, usually starts if they're confused, and they'll come to me being like, "I don't quite understand how." you know, the character came to this decision yeah. and I'm like, oh, but did you want to try and tell me? Like, I, I want to <laughs> give them the opportunity to like sit there and work it out. Um, and then they do 100% every time. And then I kind of go thumbs up. You did it. Um, because, because <laughs> I love not trying to give too much yeah. information. Um, it's only if they give me the wrong answer or if they are genuinely super confused or torn between two paths, I'll be like, oh, it's probably more this one because of go back and give an example of something that happened in the script. Um, <laughs> But no, I I love the process of actors and when actors want to deep dive into characters, like even sometimes my eyes glaze over a little bit if they're talking to me about what they thought this character did as a three-year-old because that's not important to me. It it didn't appear on the page, so therefore (laughs) I haven't thought about what they did as a three-year-old, but I'm very impressed the actor has gone away and worked out what the character did as a three-year-old. I think one of the best things ever being asked was when I'd worked on a short film for two and a half, 
two and a half years god um and it's still like i love the script now it's very well written but it i remember the first initial draft and there wasn't much like terms of character details mm-hmm. and it was all very generic stereotype characters and then we sort of fleshed it out we worked out what the story narrative was going to really be about and kind of what these characters were very much about but the actors went away and did their own little backstories oh, as wow. well yeah and i was like uh, and they kept going oh so what do you think about it? and i was like well your character is kind of like a secondary character, but I'm glad you thought about them as a first character from your perspective. Like, this is great. But also in my head, I'm like, but you're not the main. Like, (laughs) this is, it's such a, yeah, you don't want to be kind of insulting to an actor because they are, you know. Doing their job. Doing their job and they're really in depth with it. But there is a sort of element where it's like, you know, as a director or as a writer, you tend to go, well, this is kind of where it's going or, you know, there, there is an unassumed kind of slice of life mm, in, in yes. the narrative. For me, characters can be so fluid. Uh, so so when I get actors asking me, is this correct? Did they do this? I can be like, well, it's there's no reason they didn't do that, uh, <laughs> is usually my answer. It doesn't upset the plot if this happened in their past or not. Um, or, or even when I'm working with producers, they'll be like, oh, but would this character actually choose to do this? This is usually when we're trying to come up with new stuff, yeah, new yeah. direction. Um, and I'm like, the answer is this character can do whatever we want them to do. That, that, yeah. that is the freedom we have. I can throw anything in this world at them to push them to make that decision if that's the direction we want them to go Um, rather than them already being on hard rails of things they wouldn't wouldn't do. I I love the plasticine of characters. Like, isn't that the heart of the story, right? Testing them to see what way they do change and evolve. Um, So, yes, that's why I do find it very weird when actors or producers put hard rails on characters because they are so fluid for me and plasticine. I think that's great and I think... The, the best ever interview I remember with uh, the writer Stephen Moffat, he was writing the, like, he took over Doctor Who back in 2010. So yep. David Tennant left. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote the first episode for Matt Smith. And everyone was like, oh, it sounds really like David Tennant. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to strip out all the David Tennant quotes and then refine it. And then... Um, you know, his end of the script back and they were like, it still sounds a lot like David Tennant. He was like, oh, yeah, I know. But, you know, <laughs> wait until Matt comes in and reads it. And when Matt did his read through, everyone was like, what did you do with the script? And he was like, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Literally the same. He's just performed it differently. And yes. he's brought himself to the role. And I think that's what's so cool, especially mm. about genre, um, like sci-fi and, yes. and fantasy and stuff, is we've had many actors to play the same roles or different you know different actors play the same roles and i think when you get an actor bringing themselves into it suddenly the dialogue that was written for someone else Mm. sounds really like them it suddenly just goes they've turned and i think the best one is i love giving actors like you know they'll they'll say oh can i change this line to kind of suit my voice and i'm like go for it like say it how you think Mm -hmm. this should be said because when you write dialogue, you you know you're not structured to that. I think it's the worst when you hear like writing and you go, "That sounds awful." <laughs> Can you re-say it in like your own voice? I, I had a wonderful experience on my last feature film that I was pretty much on set every day. I, I didn't have to be, but I was invited to be on set and be a yeah. part of it. Um, and a lot of that was if there was an actor in the moment struggling with a line of dialogue. Uh, 
they could approach me and be like, can we play with it? And I'd be like, yeah. absolutely. And so we were doing rewrites on the set and it, it was a very joyous experience, not a, not a stressful experience. I, I loved being able to work with them. It was never anything too major. It was just, oh, can we swap out this word and see how that fits? Um, and I really enjoyed that process. Yeah, I, th- I think it's like... Um it's it's a it's definitely one of my favorite like mm. things uh, especially more the the more in depth i go into characters now um but in t- in terms of like characters well like what characters do you like writing for are you you know because some writers in, in particular write for certain stereo like mm. certain types or certain stereotypes like do you find with your characters you're kind of writing um like a rain of like different characters or characters that you kind of like remember growing up with that you were like, oh, I like these ones. What an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure. I guess what I'm doing with my book is I'm very intentionally taking a strong female character uh, from the genre <laughs> and trying to play with that as much as possible uh, because I, I was at my wits end with books I had been reading with this type of character. I'm like, what can I bring? What is a, a twist I can try and do with this character? Uh, screenplays tend to be all over the place um, because screenplays are in service usually of the genre and the story and the characters evolve naturally from that and the setting very much so. Um, I f- I, thinking of it in negative terms, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm often accused of my protagonist not being as active as every other character in the world. Um, So I'm starting to think of this as a trend of what I do of often I'm writing central characters that are seeking, central characters that aren't sure of what they want in the world. Um, And then the story they're about to go on is their discovery of that. Um, But at the same time, I obviously need to appease the criticism and make sure they're also very strong and not wishy-washy at the start of the script. Um, But that kind of... repetitive criticism has allowed me to sit back and be like oh why do I keep getting it oh I seem to be writing the same character over and over again in that the only quality they share is they are starting from this same point of not knowing what they want in the world and what they want out of life (laughs) well that's very true of most people let's be honest is it a reflection of you or just like yeah no diving into the psychology of the the repetitive problems i keep making is that can get messy very quickly yeah yeah. um i think in terms of like characters as well um a lot of the characters that I always love watching in films are the ones that tend to have a backbone or mm. um, that, you know, the best, like, obviously in terms of some of my favourite characters growing up, uh, the, um, you know, the um, Ellen Ripley from, mm-hmm. like, Alien, which is Gorney Weaver, but also I think just in terms of, you know, like, the funny thing is also with, with fantasy and stuff, like, you know, a lot of people have their favorite superheroes. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have their favorite, like, um, you know, horror characters. A lot of people have their favorite, like, fantasy. You know, Lord of the Rings is very popular. Like, I think it's HBO or someone mm-hmm. has recently announced they're doing a series. I remember yes. that being a very controversial thing because, you know, it, it's being filmed in New Zealand as well. Yep. I feel like New Zealand's now just, like, the... It's Middle Earth. Uh, it's Middle TM. Earth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's trademarked now. But... It's so funny because in terms of char- like story narratives like that, that was a very male-oriented adventure story. There was mm-hmm. hardly any women. And I think a, a, like um, all of that was kind of, you know, it, 
it was a bit blasé, I think, at the time, because I remember enjoying it and being like, this is high fantasy and mm-hmm. stuff. But I remember there was always something lacking a mm. little bit for me because I was like, oh, it kind of feels like it should have been, there should have been something else to it. And I felt like it was very black and white. Like the world was like, you're going to Mordor and you're going to the de- yeah, you know, the devil's yeah. end kind of area. And then you're going to the, all these lovely fluffy areas. And it was very the same with Harry Potter. Like yeah. there's a good and evil. And I always loved sci-fi or fantasy when there was not a good and evil. There was a black and white mm-hmm. um, narrative yeah. because people are gray and people forget that. Like they go, oh, I want a fluffy ending. Or I'm like, well, no, in reality, it's not always a fluffy ending. It can sometimes be tragically sad. Yes. Yeah. Um, and like, how are you approach that with your own writing? Are you very much like trying to base it in some sort of realistic, some element of life? Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> uh, well, okay. In terms of, uh, no, I, I 100% agree that I think um, as a, a zeitgeist, we're very much over the happy, everything works out fine story. I don't think audiences are swallowing that um, in our current 2020s. Um, and that we, we've had the rise of grim, dark fantasy in novels and their subsequent TV adaptations. Uh, that we want this very gritty, gnarly fantasy. Mm. Um, at the same time now, um, there's a very oversaturation of the gritty, gnarly, grim, dark fantasy. Yeah. Um, I would say what I'm doing falls somewhere in the middle. I I wanted to strip away the gloss. I, funny enough, I don't think I'm actually writing a fantasy. I think I'm writing a shonen anime. Like if I really had to piece together the structure of what I'm doing, it is, it's a, like a fantasy shonen is how I've approached it. Uh, so when I'm tackling my fight scenes, which I love writing coming from a natural visual screenplay place, um, I then have this tendency to, great, we've had the showy fight scene, but then I want to bring some of the realism of you know, the consequences of war, the consequences of fighting, uh, this idea that you can keep raising uh, warrior characters that don't come away with serious mental issues, I don't think is, <laughs> can be swallowed uh, at all anymore. So so I'm I'm trying to have fun bouncing back and between the two. The idea that fantasy is escapism at its heart. A lot of people want to read fantasy because it's cool and it's awesome, but at the same time uh, tackling the idea that we, we got to wipe away the gloss of it. Yeah. Like we're, we're not going to accept this genre if it is so glossy and perfect anymore. I think in terms of that's one of my favorite um, uh, fantasy writers is uh, Neil Gaiman. Oh, yes. And he is amazing. But also like the founding father, which was also Terry Pratchett. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I'm going to talk a bit about Good Omens because it's like one of my favorite TV adaptations <laughs> yeah. of uh, any fantasy it, it, because the way the story structures is the book reads like a film. Like mm. the book reads like it's got scenes. Yes. So it's very good to read. Like you're reading it like almost like a screenplay. I can't remember. Does it actually have chapters? Because I know Terry. No, it doesn't. Yeah, no, Terry Pratchett doesn't use chapters. No, yeah. he uses like um, scene breaks. Scene breaks. Yeah. And then you go into and you go, oh, okay, now I'm in a different area. Yeah. But then I'm back to this scene. So you're really kind of following where the characters are at a fluid timeline. Yes. Yeah. Um. But I think it really translated so well to screen mm. because of that. Like you, every every chapter, or what, like chapter in the book really kind of translated quite with the beats. Yes. And I think one of my favourite scenes, which wasn't in the book, is that whole timeline of um, 
Crowley and Aziraphale. Yes, and the, the, the cold open, yeah. 20 minute. How amazing was it that? It was so well written, but it also was very philosophical. Yeah, yeah. And I think that made me love, um, I developed an RPG character, <laughs> which I play uh, because of that. Because I was like, I love the idea of someone living forever, yeah. having this long friendship with someone, mm-hmm. and it almost going apart. Like, it's yeah. it's so, they love each other, but mm-hmm. they're from different sides of the world. Yes. And it was so smart. Also, I think, though, that Michael Sheen and, his, um, <gasps> and David Tennant are phenomenal actors. Yeah. And go and listen to the, um, David does a podcast, because that episode in particular, I listened to. And Michael Sheen is just a very honest human being. He went from, like, acting when he was younger and going, I'm, I'm the shit, <laughs> to now being like, I'm not, but I'm a dad and I just enjoy, you know, being a, a nice person and yeah. living my life. And I've got, an, you know, my ex wife, um, oh, sorry, ex-partner with a kid with, and now I've got my new partner and I had a kid and, you know, this is my life. This is, you know, I'm a dad and I'm just living my wholesome life. And and the same kind of like, I think that's what makes them very relatable in the show. Oh, yes. Um, because they're just so dorky um, <laughs> characters. It was incredibly charming. I could sing the praises of Neil Gaiman. Um and yeah, no, I, I loved the adaptation to bits. I loved that he was given the creative freedom to do whatever he wanted as a showrunner. And, yeah. and like he, he's obviously earned it um, at this point in his career. And we we're talking about wonderful authors that do live readings of their own work. Listening to Neil Gaiman do his own audiobooks oh. is such a special experience. His voice is yeah. just something extraordinary. Um and I have so much of his work that I actually adore. Um, but I think the adapt. So this is the thing as well. Adaptations of stuff. When you are a writer, uh, it's very interesting when you see right. You know that people don't understand the the, mm. the core structure of that story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very prominent in fantasy as well. Like I think some of the worst adaptations of Terry Pratchett's books have gone to screen, and they're about to just release the watch. Yes. And his daughter has said that's not the watch that is not the watch like and it doesn't feel like the watch because it it just doesn't feel like disc world Mm -hmm. to me it just feels like this weird punk ass disc world (laughs) i'm like like at the same time i want to be like kudos for doing your own thing but if you just wanted to do your own thing why did you make it a fan fiction of something else why didn't you just write your own thing i think um well we know the answer why it's it's ip uh gets eyes on the product like it's it's a financially driven decision it's 100 percent. and i think what's lucky um in terms of a lot of concepts now and a lot of movies uh, is is Marvel's done quite well mm-hmm. in terms of... I think they've done a lot better than DC Comics, which is <laughs> just really hit and miss. And I think it's because, um, not just praise to Kevin Feige, who really kind of played a lot of it safe early on, but I think the actors really brought a lot of themselves to the roles. Like, yes. um, and they all feel unique. Like, they're all storylines feel quite unique. But... I think with DC, it felt like a fan fiction. Like, I'm very critical of Zack Snyder because I don't like him as a director. Oh. <laughs> um, but a lot of people do because they think he does really good direction. Mm-hmm. He can't write stories for shit. Um, Sucker Punch is a great example. Sucker Punch was like an all-female lead cast and it just ends with a lobotomy. And I'm just like... <laughs> So what did we achieve? Like she's she's out of this world dancing, <laughs> and I just hated it because the in terms of a narrative, nothing's interesting about it. Um, like 
I, I how do you as a writer appreciate like appreciate the shit that you have to watch sometimes does it educate you and just go i'm not ever touching that or <laughs> um I, I don't mind Zack snyder as a, a director i think he's a very good director i'll just put my two cents in. <laughs> um i haven't seen sucker pudge so i can't comment it's, it's on that but um i think Zack snyder's at his best uh with his watchman adaptation yes in that he had obviously this holy text um, of a source material and has decided to make certain changes to the ending. And as a writer, I step away and be like, look, I actually agree with the decisions he made. I, I can see the, the film decisions, the theme decisions as to why he decided to change what he did from the source material. Um, and fans are going to hate it for just the fact that he touched the source material. Why didn't he just do what it existed? <laughs> it worked fine anyway. But I, I look, that's an adapt uh decision that uh, I appreciated and I think worked. Yeah. Um, I feel like the DC universe was just a case of too many cooks in the kitchen. And I, I think it's difficult to waggle the finger at any one person as to why yeah. the, the Warner Brother films uh, turned out the way they did. Um, no, I, I really liked what you said about the idea of actors bringing themselves to the Marvel roles. Uh, I was having this conversation the other day about good old Chris Hemsworth. Um, yes. Because recently over COVID, we actually decided we're going to watch the full body of the Marvel Cinematic Universe back to back. <laughs> we started, Which... <laughs> started this in March 2020 and we watched Endgame not last week. So we finally got to the end of it. <laughs> and... The joy of watching that is watching Chris Hemsworth's evolution. Um, you get uh, a poorly written character in Thor and you get a still gung-ho getting there Chris Hemsworth in your early uh, Marvel films. And then you get to watch... I feel like Chris Hemsworth played a really large part in being like, look, I don't have enough meat in this character. There's not enough meat in this gym mat. Um, and has really helped make that character three-dimensional and at the same time he's been, been able to bring his acting chops to it and you get some really solid Thor moments in the later yeah. Marvel movies and that, again, that that's that process that the, a script can be something that's malleable and never complete until the edit's done, is it? And yeah. I, I think that's yeah, it's, an it's, achievement. I think it's also like um, Natalie Portman left um, mm. because of the Patty Jenkins a fiasco yeah, yeah shows yeah. that patty jenkins was meant to direct thor too that's right and then marvel were a bit iffy about it and then they got someone else to do it mm -hmm. uh, i think i think it was a game of thrones director i can't right. remember the name of them but she was like oh i'm not gonna do the third film mm -hmm. so they kind of scrapped a lot of that storyline yeah, with the yeah. friends again and watching the third film you can really see that taika waititi was put on to direct and he said that script yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> what we're going to do is use the outline, mm. but I'm going to really change it up. Yeah, yeah. And so the improvisation that goes into that whole movie is brilliant. Yeah. Like he brought his own chemistry, his own like talent mm -hmm. to this big major blockbuster. And it feels almost like an indie film at the same time as being this blockbuster. Like it's so much fun. Yeah. And yeah. it's so colorful, but it also takes like the Norse legends and kind of turns it on its head a little bit. It goes, we're still touching on that, but we're not doing it like extensively as much as we could. Yeah. Um, 
And I think that's been great because he's been announced to do the the fourth film, which Mm -hmm. is also, which I love because they're breaking away the mold now and just, and I think that was a huge decision because they were like, this character's popular again. So let's bring him back to actually properly do a kind of another bunch of films with him because I feel like Chris Hemsworth is tied to that role till he dies. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think the funny thing is also Chris Hemsworth is, such a um, embodiment of positivity as well yes. on, on set. He's like one of those charismatic actors. So I think watching, you know, obviously the evolution of him and the same with Chris Evans as well, both of them as actors mm. really grew yes. as as really good actors. And I recently watched Knives Out with Chris Evans, oh, which is yes. a brilliant film. Love it. Um, and Ryan Johnson Mm-hmm. Like, everyone hates his Star Wars, which I really enjoyed because he did something different with yes, it. Yes, no, unpopular opinion. I loved it too. I loved it's, his it, Star Wars. It's, it, and everyone's like, oh, it's really shit. And I'm like, no, but he did something that wasn't Star Wars. Like, it's like yeah. The Mandalorian. Yeah. Mandalorian's actually really good because they did something small. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know what? We're going to do this really self-contained story about these two characters. One doesn't speak. The other one wears a helmet like 95% of the time. And when you see Pedro Pascal's face, you're like, oh, right, he's still in it. Um, To be fair, Star Wars has always been very big on masks and not a lot of facial expressions. Which I think works for its genre (laughs) so well. Because I think it's also one of those things that it's such a legacy of just being like, when the script was originally written, there's that great interview with Mark Hamill and he said he thought it was really shit. Like, he thought it was absolutely rubbish. Yes. And he was, like, handed it... Like, there was no contract to say you can't pass the script around. So he showed all his friends. And they're all laughing Yeah, at they're it. all yeah. like, this is dumb. And then it got made and it's now just so popular and massive. Like, as... um, I guess my next question for you is, you know, with your novel and everything, is that going to be, like, hopefully your feeling in, like, 20 years' time where you feel a bit more, like... Yeah. Are you hoping for that kind of, like, weird aesthetic where people thought... Oh, it's okay. And now to being like, you have this like weird cult phantom. <laughs> oh, well, that's the dream, right? Taking over the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, look, I, I, I currently want to write five books in my head. It's a five book series. Uh, but even that is a lofty goal because that's a decade, right? That At minimum, that's a decade of my yeah. life. I'm going to be dedicating to this project. And, and I want to do it, which is horrifying and scary. Um, but I've already been talking to people who are like, "Oh, well, like, would you adapt it? Did you want to, Did you want to sell the the IP?" And I'm like, "Oh, look, I really got to keep my novel hat on because the moment I start thinking about it as a screenplay, that's it's a very different hat, um, yeah. and it is in danger of just destroying the whole project if I try and swap hats uh, midway through the stream, which is a, a good metaphor. We're going to stick with that." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but no, I for me, I would love that in like maybe two decades time, the project might be ready uh, yeah. if, if it was to ever transliterate onto screen. Um, I, I'm just really excited for it to exist as a, a physical book is is step one, kind of. The, the process will be done for me. My, my 10-year reward is I, I get to hold something physical. Like, I, I guess the joy of the movie is the film premiere right it's it's done it's at the end and it's on a screen you're surrounded by all the people who worked hard on it and it's it screens for the first time i think um it's it's always especially with ip or anything like that um it's i think the nicest thing is seeing your credit like it's just going i did that like looking on a shelf or looking in a um on a on like the you know the poster or something you're like there's my name and pointing it out to all your friends. Um, and it's, it's so true. Like I, 
I think with in terms of stories as well, um, it is such a long, arduous process. Mm-hmm. And people think that you can write a story in a day. Um, and you can write a bad first draft yeah, in a day. <laughs> but I think also what um, you know, we'll go uh, we'll go into the topic of like uh, social media because you're also very active on your Instagram about being a writer as well, um, which I think is very helpful because you you know you were doing um, uh, what's it oh um, NaNoWriMo yeah yeah it's, it's the weird title that is which <laughs> is um, you write a, a book basically or a novel in November uh, yeah fifty k words yeah. in the month. Is yeah. the goal, yeah. And you were posting every day your word count, which, yes. you know, um, but you're also very active in terms of posting about, like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to write some stuff now. Does that, is that more for you or more for, like, in terms of just, like, uh, your social media presence? Is it just for you or is it kind of, like, to remind you of your own goals? Or? Yeah, no, it, it's probably, yeah, like a three-pronged uh, attempt at all three that I uh, I like looking at other writers on social media. And I see they're busy and I'm like, oh, crap, that means I should be busy too. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I, I've i gotten feedback from people in my networks that they like to see I'm busy for that same reason, that it motivates them to be busy. So I'm posting for them specifically and then also posting for um, the general, uh, you know, markability of my brand as an artist. If anyone looks me up, they can see that I've been busy, quotation marks. <laughs> But <laughs> by posting pictures of myself sitting in my office, um, no, look, I it, it's because I found it rewarding when writers discuss when they're having a shit day um, or yeah. when when they're having a good day and posting their milestones. Uh, so it, it's it's a public diary, isn't it? It's this idea that um, it exists. It doesn't exist until it's on social media. Uh, it doesn't exist until I've told someone about it. Uh, it, it. That comes back to what you said about seeing your name on the poster. Uh, it's like five years work. Does it exist until the poster exists yeah. and your name's on the poster? So I think there's a little bit of that uh, attention whoring in it. But um, I like to see it in, in the healthy way that um, it's to to encourage our fellows in the network. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's like um social media is one of those things where it's good and bad and I think it's <laughs> it's a very like um double-edged sword kind of situation because when you post stuff on social media like I think every time I post something it's always like oh this comes out everyone's like when's this coming out and there's a huge yes. bunch of me just being like uh, like so <laughs> so worry but I have to get more into the habit of not posting when I do something and just doing it like when it's close to the release, mm. because that's such a temptation to be like, I'm progressing. And you're yes. really like, it's a, as you say, like a self kind of like motivator, Yeah, but you've also got to be like, have that product ready because people get yes. curious in the way the, the world of social media works is everyone goes, Oh, I heard you did this months ago. So I thought it was already out or this thing. Yeah. So there's a huge bunch of that. I get that. No, I've gone from talking about specific projects in that I try to be much more general in that I did writing today on my work in progress or I'll say I'm working on my novel but I won't name my no- novel I'm not trying to promote my novel because it doesn't exist yet yeah. um, and especially the NaNoWriMo thing was very much about accountability um, in that it, I've told the world I'm going to be posting my word count every day gung-ho I'm going to be <laughs> finding hours in my day to write 2,000 words yeah. so I can post about it and even just having that you know self-imposed social pressure uh, works. I, I, it's so true as well. Like, um, 
And I think as a, you know, like as a, I have one account a specific, so I have like four accounts, which I thought <laughs> I find so funny. Um, so I have the podcast account, which yeah. I only post relating to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my sort of producing slash me just dump, dumping any project that I actually like yep. um, up on. And that is more of a friends can keep track of what mm. I'm doing. And then I have my photography account, which I post yeah. on very like occasionally. And I have another account. I started, so I tried to start a production company which sort of like fizzled out a little bit and it's it's never kind of like it's because i there was just the expenses of making stuff and then also just like things cost a lot more than you actually think they do when people just like you know wads of cash and everything and you just don't have it um (laughs) but so the podcast kind of like started out from that but i think with in terms of like um film projects and stuff i remember when i was probably in my lowest point in my like you know mid-20s I was very much in a mental health space which wasn't great and I started making these like short Doctor Who things because it was like something that filled me with happiness yeah and then they sat on my hard drive for about two years and they got released this year so they got finally released because I had a friend who could compose for them I had a friend who could like do sound editing and you know help me out with VFX so once they were released I was like there was a huge weight Mm, off my shoulder of just being like it doesn't matter how many people actually watch this I've achieved something and it's done um and I think that's always kind of like you're you know at this end of the day as creators we are kids there's there's this big understanding that we have to be professional or Mm -hmm. we have to be those like tough exteriors and you know gooey interior we really are just kids writing and playing a big playground yes um and we're attempting to monetize our, our favorite thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And there is like, you know, and we're both nerds, uh, which is quite clearly, <laughs> I think. <when laughs> you can see my bookshelf. Yeah, I know. Well, the audience can't, but there's a lot of like um, fantasy and high fantasy and there's some Game of Thrones over there. So yeah. it's, um, but I mean, like the in terms of like the culture as well, I think that being a fan of something and being like creating original work and creating fan work, these days, there's a lot more blended together. Mm-hmm. There is a yes. lot less shame in creating fan-related work. And I and talk about this with my mum, which I think is the most hilarious thing because she's just like, why do you still make like fan stuff? <laughs> and I'm like, well, one, I'm a 29-year-old man. I'm enjoying that <laughs> for, the, <laughs> like, for the sake of it. Um, but it also reminds me of when I was five yeah. and I could make, you know play around in a sandpit and kind of like have that freedom. But also, a lot of my friends who are either cosplayers or actors or, oh, you yes. know, yeah. and most of my friends who are cosplayers are actors. So it's like they just want to be part of that fantasy. Yes. They want to be part of this insanity that is you in a graveyard at 2 a.m. taking photos with blood on your face and everyone just goes, cool, that looks great. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, you think about it and you go, you know, oh, this is the dumb idea I had when I was like nine years ago. Why, why does anyone want to make that? But people do. Mm. People need to remember that whatever you wrote, it, it just send it out to people and have a feedback on it. Like tell, get feedback off your ideas. Yeah. Like how are you with collaboration? Um, you know, in terms of, well, I mean, we already talked a bit about it, but like in terms of, I think in terms of that small indie world as well, mm-hmm. how are you, how do you feel about that? Because you know, you, you must like, you have a bit of an indie streak in you as well yeah. versus like the wanting to be in the big leagues. So uh, co-write, co-writing specifically. Or just in general, I think writing and co-writing and like, you know, the whole like big pot that is collaboration. <laughs> um, 
I I haven't done as much co-writing as I want to do. Um, I've I've done television writers' rooms, uh, but that's that's its own beast. That, that must have been hard. A, oh no, I I had a very gentle introduction uh, into TV writers' rooms. They they were headed by a a head writer who wanted to create a very earnest um, and relaxed environment, a safe space where we could share our dumbest stories and our dumbest ideas um, and then get down to the nitty gritty, which I really appreciated because I I did that for two years. Then I went into another writer's room that was a slaughterhouse and I was like, that was not what I was expecting. I'm so used to being uh, coddled and having a lovely time. Um, So I've been able to experience both sides and then ask myself, well, what kind of head writer would I ever want to be if I was heading a writer's room yeah. um, and kind of the social responsibility of how you want writers to feel uh, when they, they're giving ideas and that writing shouldn't be competitive, that it should be creative and conducive because mm. um, that's how you're going to get people at their best. I agree. And I think it's also like, um, you know, the the funny thing I, I I've had confrontation with writers before mm. like I think it's like you always do and um I I always going these are the elements I love and these are the elements I'm not as fond of mm-hmm. and I think the best ever example was I got one writer who just completely changed the story entirely didn't listen to much of what I was saying it was like oh I like these elements they came back with, and I was like, what happened to the original elements? Like, And they were like, oh, I wasn't happy with them. And I was like, okay, well, I like these elements. And then, uh, and then again, they sent me a completely different ver- version of the script. And it was like a different location, like a different setting. And I was like, mm. so any criticism giving you, you're just taking everything out and putting something new in. So there is a real sense of some writers definitely feeling very insecure about their mm. own creative and i've also been told and i think this is the best thing is like when i when i've read someone's work and i will go oh i didn't understand this and then they're like oh then you don't understand my work and i will take (laughs) that back i'm like so you're not willing to discuss it like that i think there there are some writers who really think they i don't want to say top shit but they do they think that if you don't if you can't comprehend what they've written Mm, it's then. a it's a pretty big red flag. You you gotta be in a place where you're willing to admit that it's crap, and yeah. even if it hurts. And like I said, it's the two day email wait, right? <laughs> you're gonna get an email. Someone's telling you it's crap. You you're gonna be mad about it. They're gonna be the enemy, but then you're gonna come around and be like, oh, they're probably right. Um, <laughs> and this, that's a flawless rinse and repeat process for me. <laughs> that I I've been through that enough times that I know I'm gonna get over it in two days, um, and then I will have the epiphany. Uh, that I know how to fix it uh, yeah. to the notes. It, it, it always happens. Um, and yeah, no, uh, just by what you were saying before, sometimes I worry that I'm the bad guy in that I've done a lot of work for, say, the idea is the producer's baby and I come on as the writer to yeah. uh, write it for them. Um, and then a lot of the discussion ends up being, ooh, why have you gone in this direction? And you're like, oh, Maybe because it, it might be better. Um, <laughs> and, but as long as, you know, keeping the conversation always uh, respectful, all doors open, the back and forth. Um, and this is where you get really good at your craft discussion, right? Yeah. It, you don't just say, oh, because I feel like it's better or it is better and yours isn't. Uh, you need to be able to give examples as to why it's better. Um, 
and that process challenges you to know exactly why you're making every creative decision you do, which can sometimes be unknown to us as writers in the first draft. We don't always know where the ideas come from or why we've why that character's gone and done that, but yeah. in the later process to be able to defend the work and justify it, you need to do the hard yards, go in and ask yourself, okay, now craft-wise, why are they doing this at this point in the story and why is it better than someone else's idea? Yeah, and I think the worst thing you ever can go to a production meeting, and this is a criticism for just, I think, inexperienced people or people who are very you know, jaded or anything like that, mm. is never say an idea is shit. Now, mm. There are certain words you do not use mm, yes, in a production meeting because... The thing is you have to be encouraging. Like, yes, honesty is great, but be encouraging with Mm -hmm. your words and careful with your choice of words because saying someone's choices were shit will never make them want to work with you again. And and that's true. It's like, you know, I think... Or, you know, encouragement actually brings out a lot of confidence in people. It's it's the nicest thing. I've worked with um, people who aren't actors and who have done fine minor roles or, you know, like stuff like that. And they've been very much supportive of the fact that the, encur- the environment's encouraging. It's mm-hmm. a very positive place. And if you have one negative person in that space, th- everyone will complain about them because yeah. they'll be like, that person just sucked all the energy out of the room. Yes. Um, and it goes back to what we were saying where, you know, this industry now is with people they like yeah. to, and want to work with. I think it's, you know, that's the thing. It's I would rather pay someone I want to spend time with or um, at least, um, you know, want to... Um, you know, even even if it's like, you know, I've done paid and non-paid things, but I think even when you're working with friends who are like unpaid or paid, if you enjoy them and want to spend time with them, that's the best. Oh, yeah. And I will, it doesn't matter how much money I have, I will never pay someone who is an ass to be on set. Like, yeah. It's just a thing. No, at the end of the day, you're going to work on a project developing with someone uh, for a year if you enjoy their company rather than someone who can get it done for you in a month, but the experience is agony. Like at the end of the yeah. day, you're gonna you're gonna pick the person you want to work with, not the ideas, and I think that's incredibly important. I guess my next question has to be about uh, like Australian government and the arts in general. Um, <laughs> which it has to be. It has to be. It doesn't have to be, <laughs> but it has to be. Um, what's your What's your thoughts in terms of the Australian film? Um, and I guess uh, the you know Australian writers world because we are a little bit of an island Mm. in terms of creativity yes um to to sing the praises um i work with the australian writers guild well not not work with but look i've done judging for them i've been involved in their competitions um and they, they were nice enough to nominate me this year um and i think the writers guild does amazing work in the conversations they're keeping alive with the government uh, every time the government makes a funding decision that has knock-on effects that they're trying, they quietly, you know, file under transport. Um, <laughs> the next day, we've got a massive email in our own books. That's a bulletin from the Writers Guild being like, look, this is our stance on what the government has just done. And this is the steps we're now taking to, you know, lobby and make changes. And yeah. um, I think they're doing amazing work there. So it, it's not I don't want to criticise the industry for being uh, stagnant at all because I think everyone is aware of the issues we face. Um, It's just at the end of the day, our 
film industry is heavily reliant on the state funding bodies and the federal funding bodies. And yeah. with that just comes with a, a set of very uh, realistic uh, guidelines that it's very hard to move around. Yeah, there's, there's a sense of like... Um tourism and you know all these things like i i do think that films you you know you need that element of tourism because you're trying to attract people to the, the country mm-hmm. and everything like that but i think some of them are, you know you know some of the some of the films where it's set in the city so you know because everyone you know during the 90s thought we were just sand and desert and stuff like that and farmhouses and now <laughs> everyone kind of like you know thinks of us as a bit more city-based and you know like sydney and melbourne and Stuff. Everyone thinks that the major city of the world is Melbourne in Australia because everything gets filmed in Melbourne. But um, yeah, like Sydney and, you know, like uh, Adelaide and Perth and everything has a little bit more of a, you know, Brisbane even, mm. you know, like uh, now is getting huge. Oh, yeah. American watch films. Queensland take off. Yeah, I know. It's so good. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, I will, I, you know, I don't want to criticize, the, you know, like I think that we, we are not stagnant. We are trying to make big changes, but mm-hmm. I do think that there's a huge amount of like the arts, you know, where, you know, the, obviously that, you know, you say about transport and stuff, the government really doesn't like, you know, if you look at the MPs and you look at all of them, like there's some MPs who are very in favor of the arts, like, yeah, and then there's, you know, the New South Wales MP who just doesn't, you know, and I want to say... Just, you know, it's the, my favorite word at the moment in politics is economy, mm. as, how to make the economy f- thrive. Um, and I think, you know, at the moment we, we're in the middle of like, you know, cinema's kind of going into this decline, yeah, which is a huge shame. And I think the art house cinemas are really going to be the ones that probably stay alive. But in terms of big major cinemas, they might also stay alive but they might also die like no one's going to Hoyts at the moment which I think is is probably just because it's so multi big and everyone the multiplexes yes they're suffering the most yes um Whereas I still go to the Palace and Leichhardt yep. and go and enjoy a cinema um, experience there because it's only full of old people. Yeah, the Ritz was my local when I was in Randwick. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's there is safe cinemas out there you you cannot get sick at, um, and you know just be smart people when you're out and about to be honest. But in saying that, in like our industry and in terms of like our. F- you know the medium will still be there the film life sorry the dog uh, the film life will still be there and we will always be going to the cinema to kind of enjoy and like distract ourselves but i think also now that streaming platforms are a thing mm-hmm. i never love streaming like <laughs> so many i love that ever the biggest argument at the moment streaming is like everyone wants them to be on just one platform rather mm. than like multi-platforms you know disney plus we there's disney plus netflix stan um you know hulu hbo max uh you know like quibi that just died i i feel like hbo max is also going to be dying pretty soon it has not made a lot of money oh i i hope they get out of their funk um, yeah, they've been in it. Like, I think they've been in a funk. <laughs> yeah, I, I read an amazing article the other day that was literally after Game of Thrones ended. Uh, nothing to do with the quality of Game of Thrones, but it was just a fact that after it ended, they lost 50% of yeah. their subscribers. Yeah. Um, That's th- insane. <laughs> I think, um, and they're just about, and they were just like, they're about to do a prequel series. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we'll hopefully make some profit back and stuff like this. Oh, they don't have a choice but no. to do a prequel series if they want to 
get yeah. some of that money back. I know. And and I think that, it, like, the hype of the Zack Snyder cut with Justice League yes. is a huge selling point. Yes. But even after that gets released, how much of a selling point is going to stick around? Because people will subscribe for that. But then they might do the same thing as Game of Thrones. And, and once they've seen cancel it, it, cancel their subscription. Yes. Um, and Netflix just announced yesterday, like physically yesterday, um, that they're releasing every week a new film, mm-hmm. like a new over the course of twenty twenty one. Oh, I did hear about this. Yeah. Yes. So you've got so much content coming out. Yes. Um, and. I feel like Disney might fall into the same category soon. Mm-hmm. They because they released Pixar films on straight away to streaming yes. pretty quickly after they were released mm-hmm. because of the pandemic. And I both watched uh, both of the films because a huge Pixar fan. They're beautiful. <laughs> fi- they're beautiful films. They are just so well written. Oh, I haven't seen them yet. Oh, you need to watch Soul. It is okay. such an adult, adult Great. film. It's so good. But it, yeah, it's just like you can sit there and go. Oh, it's like being in a cinema, but I'm watching on my laptop, you know, mm. because some films have this really cinematic experience. Yes. And I think the ones, the two films that I saw recently um, in the cinema, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of. Uh, so one was um, Summerland, uh, okay. which starred yep. Gemma um, Acton. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one was Ammonite. Which starred okay. Saoirse Ronan and Kate Winslet, right? Which yes. is about uh, historical figures and whether mm-hmm. or not they ever had a relationship or stuff. Yeah. But I think the I think what I didn't like about that film wasn't necessarily the love story. It was just the really insanely. Um, there was a three and a half minute sex scene in it, and I just remember sitting there going, like, I went to by myself to this film, and I sat there and just going, okay, <laughs> I get. That, but this, like, the build-up in my head, I was like, this doesn't feel like a payoff. This feels like... Is just... this the best use of my time Yeah, right like... I, <laughs> um, and I think it's just, like, yeah, you know, the 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 cool thing about that scene was actually the fact that it was only women on set. Mm-hmm. That even the director was, like, went out and watched on a monitor. He didn't actually... Yeah. He wasn't in the room because he was like, it has to be a female-centric room. Mm-hmm. And Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan kind of, like, directed that sex scene just with the two of them so they did everything so i think that's kind of cool Mm. but in terms of just like narrative sense it made not but that's a trivia point it's a very like it's not a story beat yeah it was like it was just like cool i don't need you know and i think that's also like where you know how's your opinion on like writing scenes that you know or people wanting to include producers must want you to include scenes that you kind of go is it necessary? <laughs> um, a little bit. I've faced that. Um, it definitely happens during development. Uh, every time it happens, though, uh, sensible heads have prevailed. Um, I've never had to write anything I ever outright disagreed with. Um, yeah, no, no. Sex scenes are interesting uh, because I don't. It was never something I ever had an interest in wanting to put on screen. I never saw the point of them. I don't know. Maybe I will one day. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's always about the story beat. So unless yeah. the, unless the something happens, 
that is a creative tension. Um, Otherwise, it's just you've wasted screen time that could have been dedicated to character development elsewhere. Uh, (laughs) Once you've implied the sex scene, that's the story beat. Um, I've had a change of heart, though, working in novels because uh, we're we're back on the fanfic community a little bit. Uh, But (laughs) just the idea that such a beloved part of wanting to explore characters when they're not explored in the canon um, and it usually ends up being romantic or sexual. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like books absolutely have their place with sex scenes. Um, but I, I would love to hear the argument for someone to sit me down and tell me uh, why they belong in film. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, George R. R. Martin is the prime example of someone who included a lot of nudity and a lot of sex scenes in mm-hmm. his uh, in his novels. And then also that translated into Game of Thrones TV show, which I, you know, the, I think it was like Amelia Clark. In one of the seasons, she said, I'm not returning to this if I have to be naked, naked again. Naked again. Yeah. It has to be relevant. Because there's got, it went to a certain point where HBO has this sort of like underlining thing where it's like, you have to have a sex scene. You have to yes. have someone die graphically. Like, yes. Yeah. Um, and as interesting as that can be for like five seconds, in the long run, I could not give two shits. <laughs> if the characters are doing something development-wise, I'm way more interested. Um, so, yeah, in terms of like writing, I guess, all those scenes, I remember actually, this I think is a very interesting story. I remember years ago, one of my directing friends was like, oh, I want to direct a sex scene. I remember thinking, why? mm <laughs> it's a weird let, thing to put on the to-do yeah, list. Yeah, <laughs> really weird. And I think it's also like, um, you know, and that's something also I remember keep thinking about being a, you know, a photographer and like, and any kind of art form. It's when you're taking photos of um, someone or anyone who like the the world deems pretty. Um, it's very like subjective. Um, but, you know, when, whenever you're doing something that like make put someone in a pretty light or anything like that, you get weird comments on the, on the world of the internet and everyone's just going, she's hot or like they're hot or, or all these things. And I'm like... But you're not even commenting on my lighting. Like, yeah, like <laughs> look at the lighting that I did. I, I spent like 20 minutes to half hour setting that up. Yeah. Please tell me that pink looks really nice because I think it looks schmick. <laughs> um, no, I, I think there's a point to be made... Um, like, I love the new discussion around uh, how to handle sex scenes on set, um, the, the new rules. Um, I think the MEAA recently came out with this brand new, really smick set of guidelines on uh, work practices around it. And Australia yeah. was one of the first countries to really update um, their guidelines after the whole Me Too movement. Um, so the idea that a director would be creatively interested in playing in that space, wanting to know how to do it well, uh, uh, to skill up and know how to work with their actors properly, I think that's that's great. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I'm looking at, through everything through a, a story lens. Um, yeah. so, so I need to know what the story of the sex scene is. Um if it's like Supernatural is one of my favorite TV shows, uh, but one of its <laughs> guiltiest, uh, I mean, it, it, it has a lot of things yeah, to be guilty for. Yeah, I was about to say, like, a, while. a lot of things to be guilty for, but one of them, uh, it was this idea that it's like, Dean hasn't had a sex scene this season yet. <laughs> we should throw one in. And it's, or, and even Jared got a few. Uh, <laughs> and so it was just, uh, it's there simply for ticking a box, like yeah. you said, for HBO. It's like, uh, this perception that this is what the audience wants, so we'll give it to them. 
um, and that that creates its own cycle of the audience yeah. thinking they need it. And um, no, it's an it's an interesting discussion of expectation and delivery and whether or not there's an actual financial success to how many screens. Yeah. How many seconds you're dedicating to your sex scene perfect. I think I think one of the ever best films I remember watching and I thought the the nudity in it was valid. And mm-hmm. it was like one of the few times and it's called Ex Machina. Ah, yes. And the end so it was Alicia Vikander um in the role of a robot AI mm-hmm, and yes. at the end of the film towards she locks up everyone and then she finds like this synthetic skin yep. puts it on and looks at herself in the mirror and just go and sort of you have this reflection of she's looking at her human self yes and this really kind of creepy unsettling she's essentially just wearing like fake synthetic skin and it's all really strange and she's almost human and but she's acting like she is so dead like there's Mm. not much emotion and then suddenly she switches the emotion on it's just so unsettling about it but it's so it's always that look of how much you can get away like with um her disguise her like hidden you know because underneath is all the cogs and the machinery that she is and i think that scene is very like interesting because it's from her perspective yeah it's not about this like fan kind of like you know there's nudity in this and i think that's like in terms of art as well um that's one of the things i love because at the end of the like there's some great photos out there where you see like the bones on people and you see the kind of like the skeletal shape Mm. and everything i think those kind of like images are really cool because you kind of get this sense of like we're all kind of machines in a to a certain degree yeah and we're kind of like this artistic shape that we can do with our bodies um and if you look at modeling it's actually not comfortable at all (laughs) it's actually a lot of just weird poses um that look great on photos but then you know kind of don't look yeah as comfortable no no i love the discussion around nudity 100 percent. i think nudity has uh very essential thematic tools you can play with if handled well Mm. um uh, i'm going to go to anime because anime Yes. is simultaneously does this very poorly but can also has done it well in the past i, I defend the nudity of ghost in a shell uh yes. ghost in the shell um because it, it's rooted again we're in sci-fi so it's talking about this idea of what does skin mean and what does nudity even mean to a robot um and so so i love the thematic discussions around that that you, yeah you uh, can have a character like Motoko who can run around nude and it's the most empowering thing ever because it's completely thematically justified. I love it. I don't know if that made it, if that translated completely to the live action stuff they've done. I don't, I'm not certain, um, but I, it works really well in all the anime versions. And then also uh, Kill the Kill, um, I love to death uh, because it's a show that is built on the idea that wearing okay this is going to be a bad pitch but wearing less clothes like is the superpower uh, <laughs> but it, it wants to have a really smart commentary that uh the character uh, female characters are often drawn in anime wearing very skimpy outfits for completely gratuitous reasons yeah um so this show wanted to explore the idea of uh the the skimpy clothes are the weapon that's cool. Uh, and I, I, I thought it did a really smart job that at the end of the day, that was a show about clothing and they made a fight show about clothing. <laughs> and at the end, the two central female characters are well-rounded. They're badass. And even by 
by the end of the season, you're not even noticing the nudity anymore because you're in it for the plot and the themes yeah. and the character. <laughs> I, I think that's just like the best. That's the best kind of like storytelling was when you when you can just kind of just go, oh, I've seen what you've done there. Yes. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and just completely destroy an entire like genre like yeah by being like look it's been dumb for 40 years this nudity thing we're going to address it now and it was just such a great way to stamp on that discussion i think one of my favorite films that really subverted the genre um and there's a lot of horror comedies that do this um but one in particular is cabin in the woods Mm. uh, which did a fantastic job at being like they have you know the idea that there's this company of people working underground trying to worship, like feed this demon, um, uh, you know, sacrifice these kids to this demon. And there's an element of like, you know, one of them has got to be the virgin, but she's not a virgin. And it's like near enough. We'll get away with this. Like they've always got the near (laughs) enough. And they're just like, as long as they appease the traditional kind of stereotypes. Yeah. But there's this great scene where they've got, uh, like they really they everyone's about to go oh we should stick together and there's this gas they're like oh god we gotta release the gas to get them to split apart and it's just all of their directions and i'm just like oh i'm so glad they did these things because so many films i've ever seen into a school why did you split up you <laughs> fuckwits like yeah. what um and it's always just so that producers get more gore scenes or you know like yes. death death scenes and stuff so i think in terms of that it's very it's very interesting um but it can also be told extremely poorly. And and I think my prime example is Crash. Have you ever heard of Crash? James Spader's Crash? Oh, I've heard, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> There's a film. I watched that with my <laughs> mum, uh, which I think was the, like the, the best time. So you sat in front of it and it was like the whole plot of this movie is um, intense sex scenes with people who were like in a car crash and got off on this like... Right. Yeah, so it was Great. a bit of a fetish. Um, and... I got it probably about half an hour into it before I was like, I can't watch any of this anymore. Like David Cronenberg made it and he made the fly, which is a great mm. film. So this felt like a slight really, departure. Yeah. It's just like, okay. Um, so it was very like confronting. And I think it was like, it clearly was an interesting kind of angle to take it in. But I think it was like the way it was executed mm-hmm. is just so like, okay. I, it's like, I wouldn't ever watch this. Like, it's just something that felt so far removed from like. I I think it was more about showing the graphic nature rather than showing the kind of psychology behind it. Yeah, and it it it's spectacle. Um, and in the same way, you can accuse action films of doing the exact same yeah. thing. Uh, action fight scenes can be just gratuitous as any sex scene if there's no story beats in it i find them equally boring and offensive so it's not a a prudish take on sex scenes Uh, i would have the exact same criticism of fight scenes that aren't plotted or advancing the story in the same way it's just (laughs) bodies moving around on screen for spectacle oh lord um i do want to talk a bit about um villains because we did we did want to chat a bit about villains um but which is very strange to bring it over from like sexy to villains there's they're very sexy sexy individuals. you gotta have a sexy villain look look i feel like you really kind of like did that have you seen the show you where it's like oh, yes. yeah with um yes. and they did 
he's a serial killer. <laughs> like, he's not a good person. But everyone's like, all the comments are like, man, he's hot. Like, he's really kind of like oh, interesting. and Yeah, no, the, this very latest, oh, I know, I think it's been around for a while, actually. Um, go back to your early Draculas, of course. But the idea that the serial killer has, has always also been the forbidden love interest the very sexy love interest yeah. and and that strange dichotomy of the villain uh does often get dressed up and loved by the fandom precisely because they are the bad guy and then that becomes its own fetish yeah. the bad guy fetish yeah it's 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 this really thing and it's like uh, so funny because you get these disfigured kind of like villains or you get like um the joker for example mm-hmm. and everyone's like oh Heath ledger was so attractive as the joker and i'm like he had scars on his face he was pretty awful looking like um the same with jared leto everyone like you know although jared leto looks like the, he's the strangest actor i think i've ever read articles <laughs> about he's <laughs> just such a i i think the best thing was he came back from the like this like trip away mm. to the middle of the desert and then went wait there's a pandemic happening this was in march like it was like i was like <laughs> you what just you, missed it. you just missed the start of four months like um but yeah i think with villains like how how do you write villains how do you like how do you write how do you like your villains like written are they very black and white or are they very no, like i i love more complex the better to the point i've been accused of not actually uh, writing villains. Um, so yeah, some 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 notes I've been given recently um, is uh, like the bad guy's not bad enough. Uh, can they uh, can they do more evil stuff? I I, I want to hate them more. Uh, and I'm like, oh, oh, it's it's not so much. I can give them all the awful things to do, but I'm also simultaneously working to make sure uh, they're justified in their own minds. And then me as a writer, I love being able to justify the bad guy. Um, But to the detriment that uh, maybe the work is now missing a very clear, who's the bad guy? (laughs) (laughs) I'm rounding them out to the point where I may be taking off all their pointy edges that a villain needs to fill their role in the plot as a villain. How I've tried to tackle this uh, uh, predisposition of mine um, is how I've almost structured my novel. Some beta readers have come away being like, the central character is actually your villain. They're the one who's driving the plot. They're the one everything revolves around. They're the one making the choices. It's not actually your main character. Again, tying back to my problem where my main character doesn't know what they want. Uh, (laughs) But at least I'm aware of all these things. Um, And I'm like, yes, I've kind of done this intentionally that the most it the book is a character study of the villain and i felt like that was the only way i could possibly approach it because they're the most complex they're the to to be able to do all the you know quotation marks awful things they're doing it's coming from a very complex place and i loved spending my 130k words simply examining that and it it's something I've chosen to lean into rather than see as a criticism from my beta readers. They're like, why don't you just make him the, the POV character, make him the main character. You've, you've done it anyway. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, oh, well, no, I feel like uh, the villain is still more interesting through the eyes of others. I feel like yeah. the moment they're the POV character, he, he would probably lose all his sheen and he would be just derping around making dumb decisions like everyone else. Um, <laughs> but I want to lean into it. So now I almost want to structure my entire series will be the character study of 
each villain yeah. across each book. And I'm actually really drawn to that idea um, just because everyone loves a villain. <laughs> oh, and I think that we love humanizing villains. I think that I agree with you with the whole POV thing as mm. well. Um, some of the worst, worst adaptations of stuff is when they turn the villain into the POV. Yeah. And I'm suddenly like, I don't care for them anymore. Yeah. Like, they're just kind of as dumb <laughs> as everyone else. Exactly. Um, yeah. Or they're suddenly suave for no apparent reason. <laughs> like, and I think um, the best, like, so I used to watch, a, and I still do, like, watch a lot of um, true crime TV shows mm-hmm. and stuff. And I watched the Ted Bundy. Yes. Um, uh, with, uh, I wanted oh, to bring this up Zach, when we were talking um, about. Uh, uh, what's his name? Efron. Uh, yeah, yes. Zach Efron. Yeah. Uh, I was like, Z- um, Zach Braff. And I was like, no, that's not <laughs> it. Uh, Zach Efron. And he just, everyone was like, oh, he's really charming and everything. He's not Ted Bundy. I'm like, have you seen the interviews with Ted Bundy? He's so charming. He was so attractive. This is how he lured all these women. Yeah. <laughs> he was a charming man. Mm-hmm. And then that's the thing. Like, everyone imagined, you know, like, another great example was um, Mind Thunder. Yes, which I is... love that to death. And yes. um, uh, Ed, mm-hmm. um, who's famous as being, like, the co-ed killer. Yes. Uh, Ed Kemper. And he killed, like, five women or something mm-hmm. like that and killed his mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and looking into him, he's a very messed up individual but it's very interesting because he didn't he blamed it all on her, his mother yes. and you can kind of also like the way he explains it and way the interviews are you're also like i get it i also get that what you did was awful but i also get that your mother was awful you can understand how he thinks mm. the way he does yes so there's always like a human element to yeah. these characters and i think that people in society, we want to just go, they're the villain, they're mm-hmm. awful people. And I'm like, no, but you also got to understand the psychology behind their mental health issues. And also, yes. like, what they've done is awful, but there is a huge kind of like, oh, yes. okay. And that's makes them interesting, interesting, like, psychological um as ideas and yeah no it brings up it's an interesting way when you want to apply that way of thinking to your own politics um because obviously as a writer you encourage yourself to have extreme empathy and the ability to put yourself in anyone's shoes like that that's the job at the end of the day yeah. um so then how how do you deal with people who are on the extreme opposite side of politics um and you, you want to be able to extend that mental exercise of trying to put yourself in their shoes understanding how they're thinking rather than just claiming they're all monsters and locking them all up um and yeah no it can get very tricky because obviously there's what what is unforgivable in the world of politics as opposed to what's unforgivable in the world of story in yeah. story we can have all the redemption narratives we want um can you bring that same philosophy to the real world um it, it's a very fun lens yeah and i feel like um mind hunter as a show does mm, it really well yes um and it's based on real interviews it's based on and like and i think also like a director like David Fincher really knows how to make these people very human. Mm. Um, and the, just the conversations where you have with these people, are like the, a lot of them are compulsive liars. A lot of yeah. them, you know, like you don't know how much of their story they've actually told is true. Um, but it does make for interesting people. And yeah. the actors who portray them are very good at yes. the portrayals of it. And I love the Charles Manson scene mm-hmm. where Charles Manson refused to say he did 
anything to do with the murders. Like, he didn't raise a finger or anything like that. And that's the power of manipulation. Mm -hmm. And a really clever man Mm. who was very aware of what he was doing. So, villains in general actually, you know, everyone thinks are balmy, but they're actually very clever. Oh, yeah. Very high intelligent people. When we were talking about villains um, and how we're able to forgive them and but still relate and go on their journey it i love coming back to this writer's tool that talks about the three sliders you can apply to any character and Mm. that um kind of when all three are high that you're in mary sue territory right you're in the the person (laughs) who's really good at everything um but as long as two of the sliders are at a hundred like a high and one slider is low a character will go on an audience will go on the journey with the character yeah so the three sliders being proactive so how eager they are in chasing their goal how competent they are and how sympathetic they are. So yeah. so when you're talking about the good villains, they're not sympathetic, but they are proactive and they are competent. We, we were talking about how intelligent these yeah. uh, serial killer characters are and that's why we're drawn to them because they've got these two sliders way up high. So even though we're not sympathizing with what they're doing, we love that they're active in whatever their pursuit is, even yeah. though it happens to be unsympathetic. And we, we love that they're competent at it. If, if they were bad, uh, we wouldn't go on the ride uh, with them. No, <laughs> I, I think that's very true. And I sort of think that half our enjoyment in, in like any villain is the fact that you can watch them and go, oh, man, you're so good at what you do and you're an awful person. Um, So, yeah, I do. (laughs) I actually think that's great. That's like a great little... um, uh, It's a great tool to work out if someone's complaining why your character's crap. So, again, I've already worked out it's because my proactive bar is always really low. I can write characters that are are likable because they're competent and they're likable because they're sympathetic, but if they're sitting around not doing anything the audience isn't going to go on. Yeah, and I think it's also, they, they can't be reactive <laughs> to be yes. proactive. they got to be proactive, yeah. Um, you know, life lesson right there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be reactive, be proactive. Um, let's wrap up with writer, um, um, editors, sorry, editors, writers. Um, let's wrap up with editors because um, you want to gush a bit about Yes, no, we, we were just talking about earlier about the uh, like two sides of the brain, like when you're writing your first draft and then you, when you've got to put your editor hat on. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons I love editing and still do editing freelance job because precisely because it keeps those tools sharp. Yeah. Um, if you can sit back and be like, here's, here's all the things not working in someone else's script, um, then suddenly, you know, you've used the whetstone and then you can go and look at your own work and be like, oh, maybe I should take some of my own advice yeah. and apply it to my own work. Um, and, and I just, I love the role. Like, I, I don't think I would have survived several of my last projects I've been on without an editor and like the wonderful editor-writer relationship. Um, and it's something I want to be better at as an editor in that their job is to emotionally look after the writer. Like, we, we talked a lot about how writers... We're these wonderful, fragile beings that can't take bad emails criticizing our work. We, we need a weekend to go away and um, digest it. Um, I, I love that the role of the editor is to to almost be a barrier between producer notes and the writer and yeah. uh, being the one who consolidates all the notes, turns it into something rather than uh, destructive, can be something quite constructive and 
And something I want to be better at, uh, again, to thematically tie it back to everything we've been talking about, <laughs> um, is you want to work with people, not yeah. with ideas. And if uh, forming those wonderful editor-writer relationships uh, can be just as crazy rewarding, if not more rewarding, than co-writing relationships. Because yeah. one person's job is just to stand you on your two feet and be like, this is what you need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking <it's>, after you. <laughs> I think that's so true. And I... I it's just it's a nice feeling when I think just getting that or or like little bit of help. Yes. It's a little bit of help to kind of rationalize your brain as yes. well. Yeah. Um so there's a very like nice way. So I do I do know where you're like I kind of love like little editors out there and who just like, you know, and you know, the fact that when you're good at it and you're keeping sharp mm-hmm. and you're also reading different scripts every time. Yes. Like your, obviously your brain is always kind of oh. like le- and learning new things. Yeah. No, a fun anecdote is when I was doing judging for uh, the writers guild on one of their competitions. Um, obviously I, I, we were reading the first 30 pages in the synopsis, uh, but you get five pages in and you already know if you're going to put it in your yes or no pile. Like it, it got to the point where five pages was all it took. And the lesson I walked away from that being was like, oh, crap, I need to apply that thinking to my own work. Because as a writer, you're like, oh, no, but it gets really good on page 35. <laughs> just just hang in there. And I'm like, ah, oh, but I already know with an outside eye that it's like five, ten pages is all you've got. Um, that the person reading just knows. So that in itself, being on the other side of the fence, you learn so much. Um, so yeah. I, I'd crazy encourage any writers out there that you need to be just as invested in your editing skills as your writing skills, like working to edit for other people because the moment you take those skills back to your own stuff is is where the magic happens. <laughs> as, as agonizing as it is, it's very necessary. <laughs> oh my Lord, I love that. On On that note, Thank you so much for joining me on this. It's actually been really educational. Oh, well, thank you for sitting in my, at sometimes air-conned office, sometimes very hot office. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been, we had to have the aircon off because, you know, recording's hard with the sound of a slight buzz. In like. No, but thank you for the, the talk. No, I loved it. Thank you for having me. No, anytime. Thank you so much. Um, tune in next week, everyone, for the next episode and another guest. But thank you very much, and I'll speak to you all later. Bye.